Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City to make this podcast part of the Goblin Broadcast Network at GBNcom.com. You have no power over me. Do you find yourself wondering how to keep it all straight with all those great RPG podcasts out there on the internet? Like a flaming, dancing, vorpal, plus five, holy avenger of awesome. Check out RPGpodcast.com. Follow the path. The Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Welcome to another Bears Grove Podcast. This is the second in the four-part interview series with Phil Brucato. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It will last about, oh, 35 minutes. The last podcast we talked a little bit with Phil, and now we're about to get into talking to him about his Mage of the Ascension work. And uh, so without further ado, here is Phil. Yeah, I was wanting to talk a little bit about Mage. Um, you know, you said two, you had two weeks to rewrite Cult of Savexy, <laughs> and I was sitting there going, you know, that's just so apropos for Mage. Um, do you remember the first time you laid eyes on the first draft of Mage? Um, yeah. <laughs> you mean the first draft that wasn't used or the first draft that was published? I mean the first draft that wasn't used. I mean oh, God, yes, the funny. apocryphal <laughs> thing that... that um, People just don't believe it exists. I, they don't believe me when I, when I try to explain it to them. But it's I still like have it. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. I've shown oh it to my. people. They're like, "You're kidding, right?" I'm like, "No, no. This this was it. This is what hit the hit the desk when Rob Hatch threw it down on uh, on Steve's desk and said, "I won't edit this." Yeah, the, 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 wow. the draft that you and Bill and and to all credit, Steve Stewart and, and the rest throughout and uh, and created the for as much of a mess as first edition was it was a glorious mess full of possibilities and my my mission between um first edition and second edition was to was was to weed out the mess and and play up the you know i um had uh, i wanted to branch back real quick to this uh, thing you were talking about polycultural uh polyculturalism uh, because I had a fellow by the name of Chris Chin, who uh, is a uh, he's he's an, a race and RPG advocate. He has a, a community called Gamers of Color on LiveJournal, and he was he actually mentioned Mage First Edition, uh, the fact that there was a fellow named Raphael who was clearly a uh, a Hispanic person who was into martial arts and. Essentially, uh, what had that sort of pan Asian plus you know Hispanic kind of melding of cultures, and he thought that was a really cool thing. That it was something that hadn't actually been done at, at that time, mm-hmm. and so and I think that that was just the beginning for a lot of some of the the uh, uh, new thinking that was going on and stuff that you led Mage toward. Thank you. Well, that's did. Have you guys ever talked about the origin of why there is a uh, why why the mage on the cover of Mage is a black guy? No, you know we never did. Uh, that that is interesting, though. You're right. It, it is uh, Dante. Yeah, that was that was Travis and Rich Tom, Travis Williams and Rich Thomas, because Travis around that time had written a, a very eloquent essay on the uh, on the role of blacks in role playing, which he just vehemently 
um, you know, just lambasted um, TSR, like for saying that, you know, for always presenting uh, blacks in gaming. This is to put this in context for the uh, for for the listeners out there. This is 1993. Mm-hmm. Yes, the situation has changed not as much as it could, but the situation has changed a lot since 1993. At the time, Travis Williams, who is black. Uh, wrote the uh, wrote this essay. The only time that you ever saw black characters in in an in an RPG, they were cannibals, savages, or gangsters. Mm. And Travis wrote about that, and he was absolutely right. And based on some of the discussions with that, well, Travis's character Dante was also a very charismatic and fundamental character on a lot of levels of Mage First, Second, and unfortunately got thrown out in Third. But that's a whole other subject. Uh, character but but rich and uh, rich and travis um said let's 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 rattle the apple cart here let's put a black guy let's put uh, dante on the cover of mage letting people know from the very beginning that this is something different and i don't i think it was rich's decision um but he was like we're going to have the first black guy on the cover of an rpg ever and they did awesome that's so that that legacy starts before me, and I definitely played it up. I played it, I I played it up in uh, in Mage in general between you know the, the you know polyethnic polycultural had a lot of characters. Actually, the majority of characters in uh, in Mage were uh, were bisexual, were gay, were omni you know amorous. You know, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. The, the majority of characters in. Uh, uh, in Mage and in Deliria, for that matter, were not defined as you know as, as gay or straight, but they loved who they loved, and that was there was a uh, there's a line in Cult of Ecstasy where the main character uh, encounters her mentor and her lover. And she says, you know, I I I, said, I always wondered what would happen when I saw him in the arms of someone else. When that someone else was a man, uh, I was even more confused. I know I'm I'm par- you know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing it badly, mm-hmm. but. But that was very much a part of of deliria of um, of of love mage of deliria, very much a part of my my work in general is that we have an amazingly diverse world, and I feel that for fantasy and science fiction, especially, it falls to us to inspire people to realize how diverse humanity and and existence are rather than to pigeonhole them into little uh into little blocks of you know black, white, Japanese, Anglo, whatever. So yeah, um, you know, as far as as far as Mage goes, c- give me just one like crystalline moment you can think of that made Mage working with Mage like the top of your list for that time. Wow, for that time? Because I, I well, can, I mean, uh, I know I'll, now. Now, I mean, I, well, or since, I mean, just whatever. A good a, a couple of. Either one or two moments where you, you know, were finally touched by the enormity of what you had embraced and dealt with. Okay, for for the time when I was working on it, it was when a when a uh, when a fan came up to me after um, uh, it was about a year or so after Cult of Ecstasy came out, and he thanked me for for having uh, for having written it, and he said, when I first read Cult of Ecstasy, I was. In a, he said, I was in a marriage that I hated. I was in a job that I hated. My life was really stagnant, and, and I just kept making excuses for why I was going nowhere. He says, and I read Cult of Ecstasy, and I realized that I had the power to change that. 
And he said, you know, so I, I left the job and I changed. Uh, I, left, I left my job. I, I left the I left the marriage and I changed my life. And he says, I am the happiest I've ever been which resonated a lot with me because that had a lot to do, that, that was very similar to what led me to doing Mage. Um, but uh, but he, he was like, thank you so much for, for doing that, you know, for, for writing that, for having the courage to put that out there. He said, because that's still telling people to throw, not telling people to, but daring them to throw their world into, uh, you know, out the window and rebuild it uh, is, is still a radical idea. And he, mm-hmm. and he said that is that's been nothing but positive for me. Thank you. Uh, where it, the most powerful thing that I have ever encountered regarding Mage, though, was about a year and a half ago, where I was I was at a um, I was at a pagan festival with uh, with my friend Moondance, and she introduced me to a friend of hers, and he had some um, it had some physical tics that I was curious about. And I, I asked him about it, and he said that, that, that he'd been born with multiple sclerosis. And I said, wow, is that... He said, I, I imagine that would have been really, really, really incredibly hard to deal with. So it's been like that your whole life. And he's like, yeah. I said, how did you do it? How do you deal with it? And he said, well, um, he says, I don't want to go all fanboy on you, but this is one of the reasons that I wanted Moon to introduce us. He said, because it was mage. Wow. Um, <laughs> he said that, that that reading Mage and playing Mage made him realize that the things that he and other people viewed as limitations were only as limiting as he was willing to let them be. Wow. And yeah, and yeah. Mage being the metaphysic that it is, uh, definitely I could see that happening. It's not surprising. It is wonderful, but it's not surprising. Um, yeah. yeah. These kind of things touch us on a very deep level. Um, and you know that brings me to storytelling, which is really what what the Bears Grove is about. And I don't. I just wonder. You know, do you get a chance to do the kind of storytelling that um, happens in a role playing game, or or the or just happens around the fire? I mean, do you get a chance to do any of that uh, very much anymore? Oh yeah, I run a I run a Deliria game here in Seattle, actually. <laughs> awesome. Talk, so what, talk about those uh, talk about those omni loving situations. Uh, running it with uh, running it with my partner, uh, with, running it with my partner, my girlfriend, and a former girlfriend, <laughs> and everybody gets along. <laughs> that in and of itself is fairly miraculous. Yes. Yeah. So uh, so I'm sorry. You're you're starting to ask a, a question. No, I was just saying. You, so you get you get to play and you play Deliria and uh, have you got any? Um, any any uh, storytelling tips for people who are running Deliria, or anything that you wanted to uh, talk about in f- from your play? Well, uh, as far as running Deliria, first and foremost, remember that it's remember that the rules are just there to facilitate the storytelling. If the rules get in the way of the storytelling, um, storytelling takes precedence on that. Um, I had built the rule system, and this is one of the things that I wish I'd done better in Deliria. I was trying to have things both ways. I was trying to have a rule system that was based on and inspired by uh, by improvisational theater and uh, theater games, acting games, but that had the had the war the war game based roots that most people have come to associate with uh, with with role playing games. And I, I really don't feel it was good. I feel it was ambitious, and I think Carl and Julie and I. Uh, 
Carl and Julie Lepp, my co-designers on the uh, on, on the, the compact system, and I, I think we we came up with a very solid system, but that I didn't explain it very well, um, and that in an effort to write rules that didn't read like stereo instructions, I wrote rules that were very unclear and sometimes hard to work with, and I was trying to have too many things, too many ways. Um, were I and should I ever get a chance to redo it, or do, you know, were I, would I have a chance to do it over again? Um, I would have put, I would have done something different with the rules. I'm not going to say exactly what because I have some plans along those lines, but I would have done something different with the rules, emphasized rules less and story more, but would have made the rules much clearer and more concise than they are. Um, in terms of my advice of how to run it, again. Um, use narrative and basic rules. Screw the advanced rules. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and improvise. Look for and utilize. Use the magic around you in life and draw your greatest inspirations from that. Something that a lot of people probably don't know about Deliria is almost everything and almost everyone in Deliria is based on some real stuff or real events or real people in my life. It's not to say that I know Brimstone Green, but I know some people who are kind of like him. He is, he is a synthesis of several real people. And this is not an unusual thing in terms of you know, uh, writing. Writers usually write what they know. But all of the vignettes in Deliria are inspired by real people or real events taken to uh, a more magical level. And that's what I would... Uh, rather than... You know, rather than having players or, or storytellers rather saying, uh, you know, we're going to, to play the fairy tale game of the lost princess or something like that. It's like, look for, you know, look for the things around you in life and then run with those. Uh, a recent Deliria game that I had, uh, that I'd run, a recent, recent scenario that I'd run involved a, uh, uh, involved a house concert in which the, uh, in which the musician had, um, in which the the, uh, the musician had woven up uh, a embodiment of an album. He was, he was performing his new album, and in his album had actually conjured up, had actually created a uh, an entity that, because the house itself was designed around, it was was designed by someone who had been trying to utilize a metaphysical crossways, you know, a convergence between worlds and realities, the music conjured this being up and this being took him away. <laughs> wow. And meanwhile, yeah. shifted, the, uh, shifted the, the, the mansion into, uh, well, into Deliria, basically, with a, with a bunch of people in it. <laughs> and that they had to first find their friend and second, get the hell back. <laughs> and <laughs> at, uh, it, it's stuff like that. I mean, I... I hang with musicians. We do house concerts, and actually, the uh, the manner in which the um, the adventure took place was a, uh, a slightly fictionalized version of a real place that I used to hang out when I lived in San Francisco. And so, yeah, Oops. yeah, that's part yeah. of what really makes these kind of stories very powerful. You're right, uh, drawing upon your experiences, but also um, sort of adding that element of okay, so. What if the uh, literate level of reality was actual was the actual reality? What if the you know literally we did get transported by his music, um, <laughs> that kind of thing? So yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and uh, do you find like I do uh, that 
uh, and maybe maybe not, but um, that you are able to I mean, just this just adds one level of communications, another strand between yourself and other people um, when you're running games for them, another way to relate to them. Um, and explain your relationship or or talk in relationship with them. Yeah, oh, definitely. But something that I really enjoy about role playing, which is why computer games and and massive multiplayer games and even board games don't really do it for me, mm-hmm. uh, is yeah. I noticed, I noticed the, the Deliria has a little bit of an anti technological bent. Not much, but a little. There's a little sort of, you know. <laughs> And that's interesting to me, and not that I'm necessarily calling you down about it, but I just think that there is that sort of lingering, you know, sense of okay, there are these crystalline vines that are choking off the the never never. Essentially, you know, it's um, it's, that's interesting. So, do you actually is that how you uh, you perceive things? Actually, no. It's it's funny. It's funny that I laugh at that because other people had had other people had mentioned that too. And it, it's it's one of those things actually that it's that's changed. You know, in the time that you and I have known each other, is actually I what I was looking at in Deliria was that not that technology is killing the, the never never, but pretty much the opposite. That technology is giving us a greater appreciation of it, but that it's not the what was choking, and you know, on many levels, I feel what is choking the wonder from our world. It's not technology; it's consumerism. Mm. It's it's not the it's not the internet. That's that that was the the metaphor in Crystal Vine was not that the internet is bad because it was the the internet allows people to well, the internet allows people to interact with Deliria in ways that would be impossible otherwise. Uh, that the internet and the interconnection that it builds between us, the technology, the intermixing of cultures has, and it says pretty explicitly in Mage, I mean Mage rather in Deliria, that uh, that it has put us into a new golden age. You know, a golden age of, of possibility literally was not possible 40, 50 years ago and was, was still fairly radical even 20 years ago. And that's something that I find just profoundly inspiring. One of the big differences I feel thematically between Mage and Deliria is that in Mage, technology is a bad guy, and in Deliria, technology is a possibility. Right. And the uh, the thing that Crystal Vine, the the metaphor of Crystal Vine in Deliria is, Crystal Vine is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's mysterious. It's something that entrances even the fairies. And people people love it, people hoard it, people want more of it, and that it is the overuse of it. It's mm-hmm. that it is it's that the, the it's not the crystal vine itself that has become like metaphysical kudzu, um, but it's the way people have it's it's the way that it's growing and spreading because there's so much of it. Kudzu itself is is a beautiful plant. Actually, kudzu was the inspiration for crystal vine. Um, growing, you know, being down in Georgia, you know what kudzu is <laughs> like. Kudzu yep. can be a beautiful plant, and it can also choke places when there's too much of it when it grows unbounded. That's not. I, I feel that there are great possibilities, pro and con, with technology. What I was warning about in Deliria was the was consumerism. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 realm of of Tinderland is a perfect example. There, it's the people who 
log into a place who are astrally projecting themselves into delirium, which is great, which is wonderful. And they founded this place where as one guy finds, you know, that he can be his dream self, that's great and that's wonderful. And they're destroying everything in sight to the point where the, the, the more natural residents of delirium hate them because all they can think about is conquering and killing. Mm. And that, that was my, uh, that's my satire on, uh, on online gaming. Uh, I think online gaming has phenomenal possibilities, but that most people just use it for for killing and conquering and power tripping, and I think that's I think that's sad. There's yeah, that um, be done. that does bring me to ask: uh, Have you have you heard about Second Life? Have you visited Second Life yet? Um, one of my business partners keeps trying to get me in. He's actually involved with Second Life, and he's trying to get me involved in it, and. Um, has said that it would be a wonderful forum for Deliria. It's just simply been a matter of there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> that and the fact that it requires a pretty hefty computer, and sometimes not. Sometimes that's not always available. Uh, Which plus, I, I haven't had for the last couple of years. I've been working yeah. on a laptop. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I I also noticed that you know there is a productivity dip that t- takes place like. You get introduced to Second Life, and it takes about six months to really get it out of your system, because it is so amazing. You know this whole concept that after there's a lot of stuff that you've got to do before you can go. Okay, I'm over that for now, and <laughs> it it does take a little bit of time. It it took me some time and writing a blog and all kinds of stuff to get to the point where I was just like, yeah, you know, I can take it or leave it now. It's good. There's a lot of things nice about it, but when you were talking about uh, MMOs and and that sort of thing, so Second Life is a is a good platform for the kind of potential positive that you were you were mm-hmm. talking about. As long yeah, as we're all balanced, you know that balanced approach to life, not just having one outlet, you know, or one thing that you do. Yeah, that's what Kevin um, Kevin DeVico is, is involved in. That he's had a lot of very positive things to say about Second Life. I'm intrigued by it, but just at the moment, I've got so many things going on in my physical world that to um, to put myself more get to to spend more time online would just be killing the things that I'm actually involved in right now, which is something I don't want to do. Going back to what I was saying about board games and MMOs. Mm-hmm. To, to answer your earlier question, uh-huh. one of the reasons I love tabletop and live-action gaming is because it's like a communion for me. It's people coming together, sharing energy, sharing time, sharing space, and there's a physical and an energetic interplay there that I, that, that I don't – I re- I'd say don't, but I rarely feel anywhere else other than ritual and sex. And actually, I compare that to Ritual in my second installment, which hasn't gone to press yet, uh, of the articles in uh, in New Witch, that there is a ritual aspect to D&D, that the, well, not to D&D, but to, to RPGs in general, that the people who accused D&D of being satanic were missing the point, but weren't entirely incorrect about its metaphysical and ritualistic possibilities. What they saw, because they were projecting their fears onto it, was a an occult teaching tool that was going to you know, tell people how to, to learn satanic rituals and inspiring people towards satanic lifestyles, obviously. And we know from you know close to 20 years in, in the business, um, hell, if anybody had been doing that, it would have been White Wolf, and it wasn't. 
Um, but that, yeah, the, uh, the rituals in the warehouse, not notwithstanding, <laughs> <laughs> that that was a personal thing. That wasn't something that that wasn't something that found its way. It's like the kung fu classes in the warehouse, or the mm-hmm. chess games in the warehouse, or that's the true. wrestling, that's true. or the nerf battles. You know, that's that's something that the people were doing, not something that that were doing through the games. Absolutely. In fact, as as you know from having you know worked with me on that, I specifically avoided putting real life occult content into uh, into mage just doing the tarot deck itself involved a lot of reflection on my part as to whether or not i wanted to go there and when a um when a new age company wanted to come to well did come to me and mike about licensing the tarot deck and rewriting it into more of a teaching tool i turned them down because i did not trust their intentions with it um and in terms of in terms of that 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 ritual aspect, there is a the old ritual theater aspect of coming together in a in a place beyond the everyday place and enacting tales of wonder and and, and reaching a kind of a sacred communion through that. I feel that that's very much a part of people who role play with intention. Some people get together to hack orcs. That's cool. Some people yeah. get together to to share you know, to share imagination and to share energy and to share space. And that's much more what I'm interested in. I grew, I, I kind of grew out of hacking orcs years ago. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's still something to be said for hacking orcs, but you know, at the same time, I, uh, I agree with you completely. I mean, and I, I would really, man, I tell you, it'd be great to have uh, a convention where I could sit you down and, Show you some of the story games that have been put out in the, in recent times, mm-hmm. especially a game called Polaris, which um, uh, has uh, a very ritualistic feel to it. Um, it's a, it's an awesome game. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I've been studying these story games that people have come out with since in the indie game mm-hmm. revolution. People, yeah. which you may have heard about, but it's kind of difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, oh, the, the for the forge folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right up there near a lot of people who are um, in Seattle who who are in the the indie gaming scene. So uh, I'm certain eventually either you've run into some of these folks or you could you could easily seek them out. But at any rate, so what I'm trying to say is, awesome games um, and the kind of things you're saying are really you know uh, lighting that up you know in a, in a big mm-hmm. way. Um, talking about the shared imaginative space, talking about um, wanting to have uh, aspects of improvisational uh, theater. Um, uh, there's a lot of people out there who are into story, who are into um, theater sports, which is like an inter- mm-hmm. improvisational, uh, almost a game. Um, mm-hmm. And they, there has been some discussion as to the difference between improvisation and role playing, and what where they where they are similar and where they are different. Um, but at any rate, what I'm trying to say is uh, I would love for you to see these games. They're, they're wonderful games. Um, and also, it's, it's purely selfish on my part because I would want to see you be able to get uh, another, a new vision of yours out um, like that. I mean, I think there, that I would like to see you have the kind of success in the game industry as you've had writing and as you've had, you know, with Deliria, what Deliria promised but didn't deliver, you know, I think that you could do that. And I think that it would be, there's, there's, what's really fascinating to me is that right now in this time, there is a structure that could handle 
the kind of mm-hmm. indie game that you already wrote. Like you wrote Deliria, but there was no structure to handle it mm-hmm. at the time. And now there is. I mean, there are games that are out there that are very complete. I mean, <laughs> uh, amazing uh, games that don't necessarily subscribe to the regular run-of-the-mill anything. And yet they're being sold and are successful because of the uh, supply chain that exists now. <laughs> there's a distributor. I mean, there's, there's ways of getting your stuff out to people. So it's just, it's just sad that, like, once again, Phil, you were ahead of your time and you were not able to take advantage of stuff that um, p- later on people realized, hey, yeah, we want this. Thank you. Yeah, I, I am. One, I would love to get more involved in that. And two, I've, I've looked at, I have some things going on that I don't want to talk about publicly, partly because, well, it'll, it, it will sound like a commitment if I say I am doing this. And mm. secondly, because there are some legal aspects for me to look at in terms of uh, the, my, my current project. There are some things that I am looking at, frankly, that I'm, I'm looking for investors for. But given my, my other experiences with investment, there are things that I have wanted to get the financial prosperity to handle myself, or at least as much myself as possible. Um, that being uh, that being said, I am one. I am all all in favor of getting more involved. Um, I've really been looking hard at some of the things. Um, Second Life, self-publishing. I encourage my students to do this a lot. I also teach now at the uh, the Art Institute of Seattle. But one of the things that came out of my my experience with uh, with Laughing Pan was Laughing Pan for me creatively was was wonderful, and financially for me was was crippling. Um, I threw tens of thousands of dollars into it. My partners threw tens of thousands of dollars into it, and we threw. Uh, over over five years of, of life and energy into it, and we all ended up taking a hit in, hit there. And it's not a hit that I can afford to continue to take. That in the uh, in the future, when I'm doing another project, there has to be enough financial viability in it for me to not be eating tuna fish and and ramen all the time just to make my rent. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. Uh, well, I notice a lot of these indie game designers are um, they have a you know, a day job. I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't just do this. Um, mm-hmm. They have a day job and they, you know, do this, do game stuff. Uh, on, they use print on demand publishers and they are very frugal um, and they don't have any marketing and they don't, you know, I mean, basically it's all kind of small scale, but the mm-hmm. end result is that they actually have games that sell and that are, out there and continuous and they continue to stay in print and you know they have a following and it's a small scale approach but it's and it's not anything you know that could definitely i mean i i think there may be one or two game designers in the industry right now in that part of the industry who are supporting themselves that way but the best thing about it is because it's creator owned they're Mm -hmm. getting all the money i mean they they can keep the money it's Mm -hmm. their product you know, um, yeah. so I don't know. I mean, it, I'm not saying that your way is wrong. Don't get me wrong about that. It's, it's that it's just that there are other ways of going about it. And I was, you know, I guess what I was, that was what I was trying to say is essentially there, there are other ways, Phil, you can do it, <laughs> but 
<laughs> oh yeah, and and uh, and thank you. And I, I have I have looked at them. I just I kind of I, I really really burned out on on not only the gaming industry, but I gained, I burned out on the gaming audience, which is something mm. I'm just now starting to come out of with um, with 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 uh, teaching at the art institute. Mm. I'm starting to come back into optimism, but. You've been listening to an episode of the Bears Grove Podcast. The Bears Grove Podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons license attribution. No derivatives, no commercial use. You can find out more about the Bears Grove Podcast at bearsgrove.com. You can email me directly with feedback at bearsgrove at gmail.com. Thank you very much. The music you'll be listening to now is from Hannah. It's called... Rain and white jasmine.